Welcome to the Foul Vine. Here, everything wine and baseball is in fair territory. I'm your co-host, Sarah, and that's Scotty Mo. Today, we will be drinking and discussing La Crema Monterey Pinot Noir 2020, chatting with very special guest, Andrew Gibson. And as always, we got vineyard vibes, so grab a glass and join us. Look, big paper, I increase my wealth, uh. Red wine, that's good for my health, uh. Wrestle with demons, I ain't take no L's, uh. Allow me to introduce myself, I said. Well, welcome back to Falvines. Scotty, how's it going? Going, going. Welcome, Viners. That's our that's our fan base now, the Viners. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. What's up, Viners? How's it going? Welcome to episode nine. Yeah. Wow. Now look at us. Just do that. All right. Um, so today we finally did it. We have our first Pinot Noir. Can you believe it? Love it. Cray cray. It is um, La Crema Monterey 2020 Pinot Noir. First look at the bottle. It seems very see-through kind of. So like a light red. Just looking at it. Um, so yeah, first off bottle, first Pinot Noir. I was, was going to say, it does seem like, uh, a, has like a lighter tint to it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. Let's see. It's a twist off. So no, no cork ASMR today, but let's see if it is. Yeah. It's somewhere in between blush and deep, right? Yeah. It's not quite either one of those. Smells sweet. Smell cherry. Maybe strawberry. More so. Raspberry, like, like a, a red fruit. fruit. Mm-hmm. Some oakiness. I get a little bit. Yeah, a hint of that. I think the fruits are dominating the smell of the... At least my first whiff. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I get a lot of oakiness, maybe even a tinge of vanilla. Mm. Ooh. This is lighter. It's more smoky than I thought yeah. it was going to be. I get a smoke at the end. At the end, I get that aftertaste, yes. Like when it first hits my mouth, it feels like lighter. I don't know how to explain it. Totally. I, I, I like this a lot. Yeah, it's different. It's definitely different. Um, so this wine comes from La Crema, which is a vineyard in Northern California. Um, it gotten short to La Crema. It was La Crema Vignare or something. Basically the cream of the crop, the best of the best wine is um, why it's called that. Um, this winery opened um, in the 70s, I believe. They just had their um, 40th anniversary in 2019. Nice. Yeah, um, they have different vineyards. So this one is from Monterey specifically. They do have different vineyards all across um, Northern California and Oregon. So that's where they mostly are. You can buy different um, wines from each spot. So Sonoma Coast, Sonoma County, Monterey, all different kinds. So this one is from Monterey specifically. 
yeah. Is there a specific wine that they specialize in? That's a good question. I would assume, like, being the Pacific Northwest, it's like a cab. Um, but just curious. So they're inspired by um, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. So that's what they started with, but they didn't start. So it looks like they didn't start growing Pinot Noir grapes in Monterey until 2008, but they started making Pinot Noir with making Pinot Noir and Burgundy or Burgundy. Burgundian, I guess, oh. Burgundian style um, Cabernet. Yeah, definitely a very interesting place. Lots of different locations. Um, looks like a family-run company as well, which is great. Um, I chose this wine today because it is from Monterey, from Northern California, which is where our guest today um, works for he doesn't work there but he works for the team located in northern california so wanted to tie that in and yeah this is our like i said first pinot noir um typically a pinot noir grape is cherry raspberry earthy high in acidity and low in tannins i definitely taste the like earthiness but i get more of a smoky vibe mm -hmm. um, pinot noir is a thin skinned black grape it says with a preference for cool climate um, and clay soils. So that's probably why it does better in Northern Colorado or California, excuse me, rather than Southern California, just a little bit cooler climates. You have those mountains. So a specification versus a California Pinot Noir versus a regular Pinot Noir. Um, lots to unpack there, but I'm sure this won't mm. be our first Pinot Noir. Just wanted to introduce the grape into the pod and, you know, try it out for a first time here. I love it. Yeah. I think they are, other the original Pinot Noir is a French grape, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, we'll have to compare in future episodes. Yeah, very good though. Yeah, this is a Cali Pinot Noir, Monterey specifically. Yeah, I really like it. Typically, food pairing, just like with the normal red wines, is beef or veal, some sort of poultry. Uh, yeah, we'll come back later with our rating. Our guest, Andrew Gibson, will also be drinking this wine, so we'll get his take on it as well. So far, I like it. So grab a glass and join us. Good first impression. We'll see where we're at at the end of the episode. Exactly. All right. Let's get into it. Here he is. Hello, hello. Hello. How's it going? Good. How are you? Thanks. Good. Thanks for joining us. I'm Andrew, for those of you who don't know, currently works as a data engineer for the Oakland Athletics, was previously with the Pirates for a really long time, went to Rochester Institute of Technology, and grew up an Orioles and Ravens fan. We'll forgive him for that. Um, but he joins us now. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. Cooked our first turkey, had still eating leftovers. Pretty chill. Excellent. Yeah, yeah what about you? Uh, I have had about four Thanksgiving dinners now okay. with, uh, I think we're on week two of straight leftovers. It's awesome. Probably not going to have turkey for a while, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So did, were you able to grab uh, the Monterey Pinot Noir? I have it right here. Hey, okay. We already opened ours, so go ahead. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Did you guys already do um, tasting notes? 
Yes, but we wanted to do it separate, so you didn't. I want to see what you think, and then we. Oh can boy! Do yeah. Oh boy! No pressure. <laughs> no wrong answer. Hmm. We got a lot of fruit, a lot of um, like some uh, almost like uh, oaky, like vanilla. Yes, exactly. And some like. Boy, it's been a while since I've done this. <laughs> You're doing great. Maybe some like raspberry or blackberry. Yeah, it's very much a strawberry, raspberry wine with notes of oak, vanilla, and yeah. some like smokiness. I really taste the smokiness when I drink it more so than when I smell it. It actually, yeah. like, it, it almost looks a little bit darker than what I'd normally associate with a Pinot. Okay, that's interesting. I wonder if, if maybe it was like oaked heavier than that. So that's interesting because we actually said that compared to the wines we've had previously, it looks lighter. But oh, we've been drinking like Chiantis <laughs> and Cabs. So um, it might well, be yet sure, sure. for, for a Pinot, I guess you could say that. Well, that's it's really smooth, very yeah. drinkable. Not a lot of not a lot of tannins. Yeah, very low tannins, which I personally like. Makes for a, a smoother, yeah. like you said, drink. But all right, cool. We'll we'll chat with you. We'll drink the wine, and then we'll get your rating at the end of the show. Great. Awesome. Um, okay, so like I said in your wonderful introduction, um, you are now with the A's, but you were with the Pirates before, and you went to RIT. But okay. I want to take it further back. And what really got you into baseball? Why do you want to work in it? Why do you love it so much? Yeah. Uh, it's actually funny. Um, the other day I'm at my, my father's house, uh, which is about 25 miles north of Baltimore. And uh, on Masson, the local channel that, that the Orioles and the Nats are on, they were playing the game where Cal Ripken broke Lou Gehrig's record. And I remember being a little kid and watching that live, but uh, I don't remember the specific like ups and downs to the game, but just like putting that on and and watching Mike Messina pitch the game, uh, Brady Anderson played center field, um, all these like names and uh, visuals, like the, the specific uniforms where they had a cartoon um, bird, but not like the cartoon bird head. Like it all just sort of came like flooding back, like, oh, this is like the era where I fell in love with watching baseball. Um, and I couldn't play to save my life. I was terrible at Little League. Um, but I just sat there every day, like basically your whole day around when's the when's the baseball game on. And especially when I was in um, like elementary school, we didn't have a football team. Uh, the, the Colts had left. The Ravens weren't here yet. We didn't have a hockey team or a basketball team. Um, I would watch a lot of the Terps. Um, for college basketball, but I, I really didn't have other sports. Um, and so baseball was it. Um, and what's, what's been really interesting about my career, uh, which didn't get started right away after college. I, I had a year where I was just working as a, a computer programmer um, before I, I went to um, Sports, uh, Sports Illustrated, Sports Info Solutions. Uh, and was there for two years before I went to the Pirates. 
Um, and I really started to learn a lot about sort of the, the mechanics of the game, um, both from like, how is this actually done? How is it taught? But also like, what, what are these advanced stats and, and how do they like show us uh, what's really happening? Um, and it just like, it was like hitting the, the accelerator for me on like, I, I got a little bit, now I need more, now I need more, now I need more. Mm. So that was uh, baseball and flow solutions or sports and flow yeah, solutions. Back then, yeah, back then, yeah. Was, uh, was that your first job in baseball with sports info solutions? It was. Yeah. So my, um, my senior year of college, so RIT was a five-year program and my, my fifth year there, I knew I wanted to work in the game, but I didn't really know what that meant. I had read Moneyball and was reading a lot of like fire Joe Morgan on the internet and thought, I mean, I can definitely help out from this perspective, uh, but I don't know what what that means or who to talk to. And so I had cold mailed, I think every single GM, which didn't work. Um, and I've been on the receiving end of that now too, and that's tough. Um, so I, I got form letters back from a couple of places and, and that was it. And so I sort of gave up on it, uh, but then uh, Fangraphs had posted a job opening at BIS for an entry-level database programmer, basically. And I still really wanted to do that and um, was willing to take the sacrifice financially and, and moving to Allentown, Pennsylvania, the real middle of nowhere, um, for two years. And never never thought twice about that. And, and was very fortunate to be able to make that sort of decision for myself. But uh, yeah, that was that was my my doorway into the game. So at school at RIT, did you ever think before going to Baseball Info Solutions that, okay, yeah, I love baseball, I'm going to try to get in? Or what was your dream before really discovering that passion? I don't know. Um, I mean, when I when I had first gone to school, I kind of wanted to make video games, um, but you know, life changes you pretty rapidly <laughs> during college, um, and so I I don't know that I had a specific goal coming out of school, or really at any point. I, I probably wanted to be a GM at some point, but um, I think once you get inside the game, unless you're sort of a borderline psycho. Um, and I mean that in the best possible way, but uh, I I don't think being a GM is for everybody, and it, it certainly wasn't for me, and it wasn't something that I wanted to really pursue too too heavily. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know that I ever really had like a goal where I was like, I got to work hard to get to this. Um, so much as just like uh, it was almost like every year or two an opportunity to pursue something really interesting to me. Um, I, I ended up working in player development with Pirates for a long time. And at first it was just, sure, why not? That sounds interesting. Um, and when I first started, it was sort of an untapped thing that not a lot of public people were talking about of how do we get players better? And how can we use data to get players better? As opposed to the scouting lens of, Here's how good the player is. 
And so much of sabermetrics up to that point had been dedicated to, here's what performance actually is. Here's how you know these players project better than those players. Um, and so it was just, it was an interesting, complicated question to me. And then I had the, the immense pleasure of getting to know a lot of players and a lot of coaches. And then it was just, I want to keep working with these guys. Um, and, and it was just sort of chasing desires as they would change and not, not thinking too hard about my 20 year plan or anything like that. So what was your major again in college? And do you have a suggestion for, you know, kids looking to get into the game on yeah. what route they should take in college? I guess it also depends on what they want to do in the game, but what would be your overall suggestion? Yeah. So I was a computer science major. That was my bachelor's. Uh, and then later I got a master's in analytics from Georgia Tech. Um, so my recommendation has always been uh, to, to the variety of people who reach out to me. Um, learn some amount of database programming. Uh, I think even on the more administrative side, that becomes very helpful very quickly. Um, you're not reliant on somebody else to run your, your queries for you. Um, and this is not, it, it's hard. There's no question, but it's not the hardest programming language you, you could learn if you wanted to. Um, and then the next thing is just like, I guess, read a lot and, and think critically a lot. And, um, you know, th there's nothing holding you back right now from learning this stuff and practicing this stuff. You might have to assign yourself projects uh, and then go find the data, download the data and, and start running queries or building models or, or whatever you want to do. Or it could be um, just start scouting players and writing scouting reports. Um, I, I first met Eric Longenhagen, who's the lead prospect writer for Fangraphs. He was working at BIS at the same time as me. And at the time, BIS had a, a side gig where we would go to Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs games and chart what was happening in the game live. Um, and then we'd input it into our system the next day. And it, it was things like charting where the, the balls in play would go and what type of ball in play they were at a, at a more granular level than just fly ball to the center fielder. Um, and I would frequently see Eric at these games just scouting and he he worked at bis and his job was to watch major league games and chart what was happening in them. it had nothing to do with scouting minor leaguers he just really wanted to do it uh and i'm sure his portfolio his personal portfolio is massive at this point and that gives you the opportunity in five years when whoever nick gonzalez is a six-win player and you only had him written up as a as a two-win player in double A or whatever, to go back and say, okay, well, what did I see? What did I write down? How can I refine for the next Nick Gonzalez who comes along? Um, there's there's nothing holding you back from starting to do that right now. There's there's plenty of data available on on the internet, baseball savant or or other places. And there's there's plenty of baseball you can go watch right now. You could you could be watching lead on on the internet right now and doing this. So that that's always been my advice is just go do it um, and start trying to teach yourself 
as much as you can and then check yourself as much as you can. What do you mean by check yourself? Well, uh, that's, that's, so go back and say, what did I get wrong about this? And how can I refine my mental model for how I'm thinking about the game in, in whatever way you're trying to think about it? Yeah, that's great advice for sure. Is there anyone else besides Eric who really changed your viewpoint on, you know, working hard or where you wanted to go in the game, maybe after you were with the Pirates, but obviously seeing Eric really showed you, oh, yeah, you could just go do the things that you want to yeah. do. You don't have to wait for anyone to tell you. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I could spend the whole rest of this conversation true, true. talking about people. Um, when I first got to the Pirates, it was it was a very small R and D group that I went into. Uh, Mike Fitzgerald was the main analyst. He's now an AGM with the Diamondbacks, and he was nonstop. And, and it was really cool to just watch. I, I wouldn't even necessarily say I was working with him. I was just working next to him, and and just picking up as much as I could. Um, and then once I moved more into player development space, I mean. The, the great thing about working for the Pirates was it was a real opportunity to blend points of view. And everybody wanted to blend points of view. Um, I, I would have a hundred great conversations with Kyle Stark about, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what they're seeing. Like, how can we possibly come to some kind of middle ground on this? And just wrestling with it. Um, Scott Mitchell, who was our, our pitching coordinator when, when I first started in PD, he and I would argue all the time in, in a good way. Um, uh, Larry Broadway, LB, Bobby Scales, your friend and mine. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's a thousand people. And I always approach it. This is just my personality of like, let's just get to it. Let's start debating and, and try to figure some stuff out. Um, and for me, it's always been just like wrestling with one thing after another. Uh, and even even after the regime change and, and learning from Ben, that was sort of a good opportunity to check some of the, the paths I had gone down where I was probably chasing the wrong thing. And that was an opportunity to, to pull back and, and try some new stuff, which was really interesting. Um, these things are really hard to do and really hard to do without, um, you know, getting sort of attached to the argument. But I, I, what I really learned from just the pirates in general is that, that culture of trust and debate that, that we had established that I walked into, I had nothing to do with establishing it. Like that is the strongest possible culture for learning that you could walk into and, and for trying new things and getting better at stuff. Uh, Andrew, you backing up a bit, you mentioned reading, um, read as much as you can. What is something that you've read that you've taken a lot away from? I know for me, I read, um, you mentioned Eric Loggenhagen. I yep. read future value. That was one of the better books I've read. Um, with him and Kylie McDaniel, I believe. Um, what's something that you've read that you would suggest to other people that are looking to yeah. expand their knowledge in the game? 
Future value is great. Uh, the only rule is it has to work is great. Um, I mean, I started with Moneyball, right? That was that was really good. Or a lot of uh, baseball prospectus writing, um, including Dan Fox. I shouldn't shouldn't forget to mention him in all this. He's been with the Pirates for probably coming up on twenty years now. And yeah, shout out Dan Fox. Yeah. He I did a fake podcast with him, so he's my original co-host. <laughs> Just wanted to mention that here. Um, for me, I end up reading, it's more author based, I guess, than like a specific book. I read a lot of Joe Sheehan, the writer, not the, the Blue Jays AGM, uh, a lot of, you Saris, a lot of Kyle Bodie. Um, I'm probably forgetting something really obvious. Um, I, I ended up becoming really interested. Again, just sort of like chasing interests and going down whatever weird path I would end up on. I ended up reading a lot of um, like movement science and motor learning stuff. Um, I would get a lot of recommendations from friends in the industry that would just point me at something. And then I'd, I'd go off and say, this is interesting. What, what's the next thing along these lines? Uh, the Talent Scout was a good book. Um, there was one I read, oh, The Goldmine Effect was one I read this year that was a, a recommendation to me that I thought was really great. Um, some of them, not so much. You know, you end up reading some clunkers when you are just searching widely for a lot of stuff. But um, yeah, a lot of it's baseball specific. Some of it's just like statistics stuff. Um, Nate Silver's book, when it first came out, was a big, I guess, influence for me. Um, and, and some of it becomes more generic, like leadership or strategy or sports science or, um, you know, I, I can get something out of reading about basketball or soccer, which aren't sports that I follow that closely. Um, and just sometimes it's just good just to get out of your headspace. Like, well, I think about baseball mm, 23 hours a day. So maybe that last hour can be about something else. Yeah, I mean, even um, books aside, like I used, I used to be more—not used to be—I still am um, very interested in the scouting side, and so I would just sit on fan graphs all day long, especially in college. Put aside all my homework, and I would just read the scouting. Like I'd practice scat writing scouting reports, and I would read through like eric's such a great writer um they've had a lot of good writers that come through there um have someone who's with the brewers now his name's um um august Bakerstrom. Oh, august yes yeah. uh, and kylie um yeah I, I highly recommend people who are involved who are interested in in scouting too to you know peruse through um reports written online and you know there's baseball prospectus if you want a more statistical yeah. background and yeah yeah, back back in this is going back a ways, but Jason Parks and Kevin Goldstein's podcast and the amount of writing they did and and the way they approached the game of definitely from a scouting lens, not not a statistical lens, but like wanting to learn as much and, and get it right as much as possible. That, those are huge influences, and that I I got way into that right when I was going to BIS, and again it was just like the accelerator for me. Yeah, perfect timing, perfect storm there. And KG, uh, Kevin Goldstein, and Jason Parker are in the game now on the on the team side, which is really cool. So um, you can 
if listener interested, if you're out there and want to go from writing to a front office or vice versa, that's definitely a possibility. I wouldn't say limit yourself. So you get to the Pirates. You're there for some low lows and some high highs. I was wondering if, if you could talk to us about the wild card games. Oh, what sure. that was like for yeah. you. Yeah, 2013 was my first year with the Pirates. So I, I ended up being there for 10 full seasons. And I just left and, and came over to the A's about two months ago. Um, and and so over that 10 years, the, the first three years uh, were really something, especially the first year. Um, we <laughs> The thing about the, the wild card game, especially in Pittsburgh, where you could just feel in the air how much the city like needed this right right now. Um, after we won, uh, a guy jumped off the Clemente Bridge into the Allegheny River just out of like jubilation. Um, and he was okay, which is wild. Um, but like that, to me, that made sense at the time. Like that whole week, it was just very hard to stay focused on anything. And they had opened up uh, so right outside the ballpark, uh, you have the Clemente Bridge and then um, Federal Street. And they had closed up all of Federal Street from one end of the bridge across the river all the way down to the ballpark. And the place was just packed with people right at like 7 a.m. And everybody's wearing black shirts because Andrew McCutcheon had declared it a blackout for the game. And so it's really cool to go back and watch the highlights from this game. And, and I have watched the highlights of this game probably more than any other single game in my whole life because the whole crowd is is losing their minds and they're all in black. And it's like this like black wave of people just losing it the whole time. Um, and I don't know that I will ever see a ballpark more electric than that. I don't know what it would have been like if the Pirates had gone to the World Series that year because like it almost felt like you needed to take a step back after all that um i remember the it was game four of the nlds charlie morton versus michael waka at home and waka threw a no hitter for eight innings or seven innings and and pedro alvarez hit a home run to break up the no hitter but then we lost either two to one or three to one and it felt you could just feel like the intensity had deflated a little bit like it was just really hard to keep that sort of action up um but that was that was insane um the the next two years unfortunately you know ran into a couple buzz saws um and i just remember the only thing i really remember from 14 and and 15 14 more was just being tired <laughs> like i i got to the end of the day and i was sad and and just tired and i probably went home for like four days and, and mostly just laid in bed um really tough really tough because we were down early in the game and never we we were never even remotely in it in 14. uh and then in 15 uh Schwarber had a home run right in the first inning off Cole which which hilariously he would do again a couple of years later um and and we at one point we had runners on in either the seventh or the eighth and I think Marte grounded into a double play to sort of end the threat. And that was like the moment. And and then it was like, oh, we got no shot um, with the bottom of the lineup coming up against Arietta. But 
you know, it's just, it's, it's tough. No, nobody's ever going to convince me for my money. The 2015 pirates were the best team in the game that year. They had the second best record in baseball, right? Yes. Right behind yeah. the Cardinals. And yeah. over that three year stretch, I believe we had the second best record over those three years behind the Cardinals finished in second place three times. So, um, yeah, I mean, like growing up in Pittsburgh, that Cueto uh, chant with falling, yeah. falling that up with a uh, Russell Martin home run. That was like one of the best, that's the best baseball moment I've experienced in yeah. Pittsburgh in my, my whole lifetime. But um, what did you think? Are you glad that we're away from the wild card form, the one and done playoff game? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the one game playoff is really exciting. Uh, I think it just like, there's something very inherently frustrating about um, the possibility of running into one pitcher that can just shut you down. And of course that can happen. And in it was either in 14 or 15, we had like this very outside shot at still winning the division late in the regular season and used our number one pitcher didn't work out. Then we were stuck. I, that must've been 14 because we, we put Edison Volquez out in the wild card game. Not ideal, especially against Madison Bumgarner. And you're just left thinking like, well, you know, that stinks and that's all we can take away from it. And I think this year watching the, the three-game wild card series, it's still super exciting. It still feels like, all right, do or die, let's go. But you're not so beholden to, we have to have the best pitching matchup possible. Um, so, you know, nothing's ever going to be fair. It's the playoffs. It's not supposed to be fair. Uh, but I am glad that I'm never, ever going to have to deal with, oh, no, we ran into an ace pitcher, and now we're going home after we won 100 Find games. Jake Arrieta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had we had no plan against Jake Arrieta. Like, what, what can you do? The guy's the best pitcher in the game. It's not even close. Yeah, that was tough. But awesome that you got to see Pittsburgh that rowdy, and that's something you know that I yeah, dream to see really... one day. Yeah, Very... it'll happen again, no question, and it'll probably be even rowdier. Yeah, true, because <laughs> it won't be that one game. It'll be right. oh, we're here for a series where we're climbing, we're climbing the Clemeni, as they call it. Absolutely, Pittsburgh's a city that will. Sh- I mean, Steelers obviously have a different feel being. A football team and like having the success that they've had but pittsburgh is a city that would show up for any team if they are good um so i wasn't surprised from those three years that i mean the stadium was literally shaking um yeah. and hope to see that again but yeah I, you know it's interesting with all the success that the pens have had and the sailors have had to see how much the city wanted baseball to be the thing like you know they want it Mm. and this it's a city where obviously attendance is what it is right now but this is not apathy like if things aren't going well people are pissed like they they need the team to be better than this and that's exactly what you want from your fan base yeah you want them to care i just remember when i first moved here I was trying to tell Connor, don't tell people that I work for the Pirates because I'm going to get a tongue lashing. Like, they're just going to show me no mercy and tell me what's wrong with the team. I was like, I just got here. I just started, you know. So I'd be like, keep that on the hush hush, please. Thank you. I don't want people to know and yell at me in the streets of Pittsburgh. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So during that time, 13 and 15, you were working in player development, but living in Pittsburgh? Yeah, I, I was on the road a lot. Um, a lot of time in Florida, a lot of time in Indianapolis or Altoona or wherever. Um, a lot of road trips, but yeah, home base has always been Pittsburgh for me. Um, LB was based out of Florida as a farm director. Um, and he always made it super easy for me to stay connected with everybody. And, you know, in many ways, player development is a, it's a network. Um, you, you need to have some home base operations, but you've got roving coordinators who are anywhere, including the DR. Um, you've got coaching staffs that are all over the place. You've got 200 players who are all dealing with stuff who sometimes are there and sometimes aren't there. Guys moving up and down, um, a lot of shuttle between AAA and the big leagues. Like I, I am eternally grateful to Larry for um, making it as easy as possible in me being thrown into a really complicated situation that I felt very much in over my head. And he just, he made it easy for me. Yeah, that's awesome. It's very cool. So you mentioned earlier that it was kind of an untapped territory, you know, having a data engineer, some sort of R&D in player and development or coaching and player development as the pirates call it. Um, what have you come away with since then? Obviously, you probably learned so much, taken so much away. Is there anything that sticks out in the realm of data analytics, a certain stat or a certain metric that you're looking for in minor league players that you think can help a player development team or something that you learned that is like, oh, yeah, that's a good indicator for a, a, a good major mm -hmm. leaguer? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different things. Um, we would talk about sort of like, Sometimes we talk about red flags. So if a player is being pretty successful, a hitter is being pretty successful, but he's striking out a lot and he's in a ball. Okay. Well, he's not going to suddenly stop striking out a lot. And then for us, it was always, well, how can we break that down into, um, is it a, to use the, the modern terms, a swing decision uh, thing where he's swinging at the wrong stuff? Uh, especially a lot of chase, like it, it's really easy to swing and miss at chase. Is it in zone fastballs? Is it uh, sliders away? Um, or is it something more aligned with how he does it, how he moves, what his swing looks like? Um, if he swings and misses at everything in every type of count, that tells you something totally different than if he um, doesn't get to two strikes that often, but once he does, he's swinging and missing a ton. Okay, well, that might be more of an approach thing. Um, I think one of the big big things that I learned uh, just over the years is that it's, it's never one thing. There's no one magic bullet. And that that's going beyond just data analytics. Like, it can't just be launch angle, for example. You want it to be. You want it to just say like, oh, let's just get this guy to hit some fly balls. Um, just the same way that it's never just getting his foot down on time or it's never just motor learning. Um, and, it, and sometimes it's, you know, what's going on from an approach point of view? What's going on in his life? What, what's his diet look like? Other times it's something else. It's never just one thing. It's usually all these things blended together. Um, 
on the pitching side, I think there's been so many advances that it's like it, it's wild to think about what we were talking about eight years ago and and how far behind that was from what we're talking about now. Um, ton of work's been done on uh, stuff plus models uh, with the pirates. We called it a raw grade or a raw plus grade, um, and just figuring out. What about a pitcher and the way he spins the ball to create movement on the ball? Can we change and what can't we change? And then saying, well, let's change the things we can if we need to. Um, that's been like just unbelievable to watch and, and be a very, very small part of. Um, and who knows where, where it's going from here, especially with we have uh, biomechanics data sets that are infinitely bigger. Not literally, but much, much bigger than what we have worked with up till now. And it's just to me, like I I always get a little like floored by thinking when I first got into sports, like as a little kid, it would be the box score. You get maybe 30 data points per game for the whole for the whole team. And then once pitch fx came out and uh mlb game day came out now suddenly you're getting okay 300 to 400 pitches per game with all of the movement release points everything else and then we added on okay how hard's the ball coming off the bat then we added on where are all the fielders standing and what are their jumps and how quickly are they moving what's the the breakaway speed of the hitter coming out of the box okay now we're talking about something like 300 data points with 100 columns to them per game. That's a ton of data compared to the 30 that I started with. But now with biomechanics, we're literally talking about a million rows of data with 300 columns to it per game. Um, and that invites so much avenue for where are we going to go next? And um, I don't have any sort of background in biomechanics outside of just having watched baseball a ton and, and talked about things that we're going to start to codify now. But, boy, I, I just hope I can I can help out a little bit with trying to unlock some of the potential there. It's really, really interesting right now. I'm fascinated by the, your role in player development. Um, so you were essentially a data engineer going around to the um, affiliates. Is that is that correct? Well, so... I mean, there's there's a bunch of different ways that you can work in R and D. If you think about it, like a data engineer, the, the traditional data engineer is a backend programmer who's working on uh, the the pipeline. So, how do you code data so that it gets from the vendor? So, we buy data from BIS, got to get it into our database and then into our our system so that our decision makers and coaches and whoever can look at it. Data engineer is is handling all of that aspect of things, traditionally. Um, the same way that like a mathematical modeler, or um, there's there's a bunch of different ways to title these things. But um, a, a research scientist might be taking the output from that and then building a regression model, or a random forest model, or whatever, uh, and then saying, "Here's the insights that we're gaining from that data." And, and having a, a data scientist lens to it. Um, somebody else, an analyst, might be taking the results from all these things and saying, here's who I think are good players and bad players, if they're scouting analysts. 
for a pro valuation analyst. Uh, a player development analyst might be taking those things and building reports and talking to coaches on a daily basis um, and trying to find insights or, or trend lines or, or flagging opportunities for growth or, or red flags. And so I was doing some of that work along with some of the backend work. Um, when, again, when I first started, the Pirates were much smaller. There were five of us in R&D. And I think, I don't know how many they have now, but I think it's closer to 30 than to five. Um, and so you end up wearing a lot of different hats. Um, and that's that's true with A's too. Like I've been doing a lot of the, the backend programming, a lot of data visualizations, a lot of talking to coaches already. Um, and you know, we'll we'll see which direction it goes, but it ends up being a lot more generalized from my point of view uh, than maybe this like super specialized like a data engineer. Like, why are you coding pipelines if you're out watching players? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, do you find that uh, becoming well versed in the data is becoming a a more important for minor league coaches? Um, because I feel like with the increasing number of data points that are coming out with, you know, pitch effects and stat cast and everything, um, you know, it, I, I feel like that that uh, re the responsibility on the coaches to become a little bit more and more well-versed as the years go on is becoming more important. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, again, compared to 10 years ago, I, the the amount of ability for a coach at any level to talk to an analyst has dramatically increased and, and it needs to because i think you know a coach can can learn these things like he can read um baseball prospectus or or you know service's writing or scorecasting or whatever and, and can become sort of fluent in what these things mean but coaches lives are like super busy and there's not a ton of time or space to like think and do this heavy lifting research in a minor league clubhouse and so they're going to need to be able to interact with player development analysts who might have a playing background or might not and be able to speak the same language as them and i think that that means the, there's impetus on the analysts to learn what coaching looks like and to not be the guy walking in and say, just change his launch angle. All right, I'll see you next month. Um, the same way that the coach can't just say like, oh, I know analytics. We just want him to, to hit the ball higher. All right, get out of here. Um, that's not a productive conversation, obviously. And so coaches learning what, what the analysts are talking about, what they mean when they say a standard deviation, what they mean when they say the mean projection, and how it's not literally he's going to hit 285. Uh, that that unlocks a lot of deeper conversations after that. So it's it's not so much that like they need to be super well versed in like how these things are built or what goes on behind the scenes or even necessarily like what the like break even point for WOBA to be predictive for next year is, but just to understand like, oh, here are the things that the analyst is thinking about. And here's the questions I can ask him. And I can get him, you know, brainstorming with me on things. 
I think that's where the game has gone and will continue to go. Yeah, I think it goes both ways too, though, right? A data engineer, an analyst also needs to learn where the coach is coming from, where the players are coming from, and be able to have that in their mind when going through reports or data points or analytics. I think it definitely goes both ways. And that's the teams who do that well are going to succeed, especially like the Astros, right? They have coaches who are understanding analytics and, and, and players who are understanding it, as well as analysts who are understanding coaches. And I think that vice versa-ness, which is not a word, um, but um, symbiotic relationship is important. How about that? Yeah, it is. That's exactly right. It's a symbiotic relationship. Um, I, I have a vivid memory of getting sort of stuck on a player at one point, and, and I had spent a lot of time building out these reports with different things flagged for if it's outside of one standard deviation or whatever. And um, we were talking about a like more of a sinker ball pitcher who is doing well in maybe in like high A for us. And we're, we're talking about him at a mid-season review meeting. And I'm flagging all the things that are wrong with this because it's it's ground balls. It's not strikeouts. And you, I just looked over at the pitching coordinator and his face is getting bright red because he's he's frustrated because I'm just reading what's on the sheet. I'm not mm-hmm. offering any deeper understanding. I'm not opening up a, a conversation. I'm just saying the sheet's red. So like this player's either not very good or we need to do a lot here. And that is, that's a roadblock conversation. That's not a, a open up and let's talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and what am I missing sort of conversation? Yeah. I mean, kudos to your self-awareness. Obviously you're saying well, and, that years later, probably. But, well, and that, yeah. that player made the big leagues. Oh. So, you know, like, again, I, I think it just, it goes back to understanding when you walk into anything that, like, I know a lot about baseball. I've spent a lot of time learning about it. I also don't know anything about baseball. And, like, I'm about to get a whole bunch of stuff, like, not just a little wrong, but totally wrong. And the only way that, as an organization, that we're going to succeed and build a, a player development dynasty or a big league dynasty is if we're working together and challenging each other and brainstorming together on things. Yeah, for sure. It's huge. I mean, the pirates are also still working on that as well. And now you're with the A's working on that. Um, Would you say your new role with the A's is mainly focused on player development or it's 50, 50 um, big league team player development or majority? Um, so it it is going to be a lot of wearing a lot of different hats. Um, good thing you have a good <laughs> head for hats, then. Yeah, the the A's. It's funny because you know, obviously, with Moneyball, the reputation is the the innovators in the space. Um, and there's a lot of people who have been here a long time that I'm I'm still in like getting to know you phases. Um, but it is a smaller R and D group than probably most of the teams out there. And I think that that is a strength and a weakness at the same time. Um, And so part of the strength is like, I'm going to be involved in a lot of different aspects of the game, including the draft. Um, And right now, just because of where we are in our rebuilding phase, it's going to be player development focus and a little bit of draft focus. They've done a bunch of good work over the past couple of years, um, especially with like a managerial change of just 
setting up what they want analytics in a big league clubhouse to look like. Um, and they have they've done a ton of work even before that of what they want analytics to look like in a in a trade deadline war room. Uh, so so that stuff I want to help out and and add what I can and take back what I can. Um, I think for us right now, the there's more impetus for let's get player development better than it's ever been. Just because like we have a lot of really interesting players, really raw, a lot of really young players. Um, we've already done a lot of the heavy lifting of of trading most of the, the good big leaguers away. And now it's it's time to bring up a new generation of really good A's big leaguers. Um, and getting that to work better than it's ever worked before, um, I think is is all hands on deck, basically. So you mentioned you'll be working more on the draft. Um, how big of um, a data set are you guys working with with uh, on college players? And like, yeah. what? How do you go about? Are you are you going to be working with college players? I'm assuming you get data sets from like showcases and whatnot. Yeah the uh, the amateur data set is like really fascinating. How it's it's slowly growing more and more every year. Um, there's a lot that's done from either like SIS provides a lot of college data, uh, TrackMan radars or Yakutech camera systems record a lot of what happens in a lot of D1 ballparks. There's a lot of showcase events that MLB teams put on or that MLB puts on that give every team an opportunity to just put players on Hawkeye systems or, or Kinetrack systems or any of these other uh, companies. Um, and that is just increasing more and more how much we know about these players. It's always going to be arguably the hardest question in the game because in addition to having less data than you would on a big leaguer, you're also trying to project out even a college guy. What's he going to be like five years from now? I don't know what I'm going to be like five years from now. Um, and so the data set continues to get more and more robust, a little bit tougher on high school players. And I think that's a big part of why you see a lot fewer high school players taken in the first round, especially. Um, and you see a lot more emphasis on scouting with high school players. Um, I went up uh, one day this, this past summer to watch um, the Pine Richland and North Allegheny game where Cole Young. Um, yeah, Cole Young was playing shortstop for, for North Allegheny. And uh, I, I ran into the Pirates scouting director who was at the game, and I was just saying hi, trying not to interrupt them. And uh, we're walking out after the game ends, and it's it's like 40 scouts leaving the, the ballpark. Every single team was there. Um, and that doesn't surprise me at all, because that's the data set you're going to have is scouting information and have a lot of different takes and, and try to blend, he saw this, that guy saw this, the analysts didn't see anything. So, like, how do you know if Cole Young's going to be Carlos Correa or if he's going to be, you know, somebody who doesn't make it or, or makes it, but maybe it's more a cup of coffee. Um, and at the same time, like every good college player went to high school. So, you know, that there are hall of famers who are in the high school class that you could take right now, 
but that uncertainty gets in the way of figuring out who to take and who not to take. I remember the, so the pirates, um, maybe the last high schooler we took was, was Quinn Priester. And, you know, there's debate around that for sure, especially on the pitching side, um, especially right-handed high school pitcher in the first round. You don't see that that often. Um, and as I got to know Quinn a little bit, I, I was like all in just on the person. Um, this is a guy who's obsessed with getting better. And he's also obsessed with being a good guy, um, which, you know, maybe isn't as important to winning a World Series, but like, I think speaks to your character off the field as your character on the field a little bit. Um, and as we've seen just him develop over the years, like now he's a top 50 prospect in the game, maybe higher. And, you know, there's a ton of things to work on there, but like you go back and redraft that round, he's still probably going in the first round. Um, and that's just kudos to the scouting staff because it'd be really easy to punt on a player like that and say, well, let's just find a, a really good college player instead. Um, I, I have no idea if you're ever going to see a, a high school righty taken in the top half of the first round, but they are still out there and they are still really good. And for me, I just love wrestling with the idea of like, what don't we know here? How good is this guy going to turn into? And and what about the story that hasn't been written yet? Are we about to unlock and find out? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I know um, you haven't seen like I feel like every year you see less and less high school pitchers in the first round. I mean, I I think Andrew Painter, who's one of the best pitching prospects right now for the Phillies, he was a top twenty pick. Um, but I know also that Priester, I believe, had. Um, a scholarship to play football at TCU um, or somewhere division one. Um, does that, I don't know, maybe not from a, uh, from the analytic side, but do you think scouts look at that at all for, for, for a dying um, demographic and high school players? Like, Hey, in the era of sports specialization, um, this guy is a multi-sport athlete. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Think, yeah. yeah. I, so from what I've like read research wise, um, my understanding is like multi-sport athletes are special in, in some way. And, and especially to be able to have the ability to play college football or college baseball. Um, I think that speaks to some extra level of athleticism that you might not see on the field. Exactly. If you like put them at a combine and just said like, throw your fastball, throw your curveball. Um, and it might also just speak to, like a desire to to be active and play sports. Like there, there's a lot of minor leaguers, and I, I don't say this as a pejorative at all, but guys who mostly just want to like play video games when they get off the field, or or you know decompress and, and do anything else. And and they're they're pro athletes, and they're they're highly talented, especially compared to somebody like me. I feel but, like we're targeting Kyler Murray for some reason. Well, I don't know, just a thought. Um. And uh, guys who just really want to play and, and be competitive. And, you know, there's an extra gear to, to players like that. Really hard to quantify. I'm not even trying to quantify it. Just something about that would be interesting to me. 
Yeah, I think there's a mental component to a or to sport athletes as well. Being able to compartmentalize, you're also moving your body in completely different ways. There's just so much that goes on there. I, I agree with you. Um, yeah, and it's a ton of research that variability in movement teaches better movement patterns. For sure, that's so, why football yeah. players should take ballet. Yeah, and it wouldn't wouldn't shock. I don't know what position Quinn played. I, I really don't know anything about his his football career, but guys who could throw the, the football with a good spiral probably can get to a good curveball too. And Quinn's got a good curveball. No question about it. So he probably had a pretty tight spiral. <laughs> That's my guess anyways. All right. Well, we've had you for almost an hour now. I don't want to take up too much of your time. You will have to be a recurring guest because I have at least 10 <laughs> more questions that we didn't get to. So you well, must I would love come it. back. So up. yeah, definitely. Okay. Good. Um, so my last question, just to go full circle, because you started off talking about the Orioles and Cal Ripken and Mike Messina, who is your favorite player growing up? Uh, so I had four favorite players. <laughs> I know that's not what you're asking, but um, I, I would often find myself playing in the backyard. We didn't really have a sandlot. I grew up in the suburbs uh, and I would be pretending to be one of these four guys. So it was Mike Messina, no question. And and watching him the other day on the the Massing Classic, so cool. He gives up a home run in the first inning. Zero change to his demeanor. He's he was stone cold killer out there. Really thoughtful pitcher. Obviously, Stanford guy. He was in the crossword puzzle movie. Um, unfortunately, made some bad career moves for the second half of his, of his career. Um, well, and I don't know what I don't know, hey, hey, I don't know right. what happened to him. I think he we are a Yankees childhood fan podcast. Scotty is still wearing that. I, I didn't he, I didn't hear any of that. So, <laughs> um, but just he he worked quick and he had a lot of pitches and they all moved and he was under control the whole time. It was awesome. Uh, Cal Ripken. Everybody in Baltimore loves Cal Ripken. You, I think you'd go to jail if you didn't say Cal Ripken. Um, the same way that I'd go to jail if I didn't say Ed Reed was my favorite Raven. Um, the other two, maybe less well-known, uh, Brady Anderson, who hit 50 home runs one year, is that's probably what he's famous for. But um, center fielder, he had some odd batting stances. Um, very uh, beloved player while he was active in Baltimore. Very good-looking, handsome guy out there. Um, I always love just pretending to be him with the, the batting stance. I did I did his batting stance and then the the Cowrican uh, violin batting stance. Um, and then the last one is Chris Hoyles, who was like the power hitting catcher. Who um, I saw him. He hit two grand slams in one game, and I believe he hit an ultimate grand slam, the walk off grand slam with two outs, down by three. Um, and that is like how you cement falling in love with one player forever. Yeah, that's fair. I was hoping you would say Messina too, so we could um, talk shit about when he was on the Yankees because that was amazing and electric. He was amazing. Well, here's here's what I know. Uh, the Yankees, they won the World Series in 2000, and then they signed Messina that winter, and then they lost the World Series in 2001, um, and then he retired in 2008. And then they won the World Series in 2009. Do I have that right? 
So that's I, interesting. I'd have to go back and look, but I think the timeline matches up. <laughs> uh, I have I have one more question. Um, not a non baseball question. I heard you're a Ravens fan. Yeah. Are your Ravens going to spare my Steelers a few W's here at the end of the season? <laughs> well, if they if they play anything like they played this week, uh, I think every team has a chance against them. <laughs> Good to hear. Now I've been I've been waiting my whole life for a Steelers team this bad, and having said that on the podcast, now guaranteed to have the Steelers run off four straight wins or something. We're, we're actually going to watch the Steelers Monday Night game right after this. But yeah, um, yeah no, I have I've not seen a Steelers team this bad. Um, I've seen them like around 500, but I don't remember them being this bad before. So. Yeah, it's awesome. Like I said, yeah. I've been waiting my whole life for this. Yeah. <laughs> At least you don't have a Hall of Fame quarterback with an under 500 team right now. That's me as a Packers fan. Anyways, I digress. So, um, why been waiting a long to- time for the Packers not to be good either. So, you know, it, <laughs> it probably will only last one or two years and then it'll be some other Hall of Fame quarterback coming along for both the Steelers and the Packers. Cheers to that. Love that. Yeah, love love that. <laughs> so I forgot to ask you up front. Um, do you like wine? Do you like a certain yeah. kind of wine? What do you go to? Just curious your tastes. Um, I do like wine. I, I took a couple of wine tasting classes in college and uh a lot of people don't know upstate new york is actually a really great wine place the finger lake wine region is is underrated for my money and so we would often uh take bus trips and just go around one of the lakes and stop at like 20 different wineries and uh you really don't know how badly your taste buds can feel until you've been to 20 straight wineries um so I end up drinking a lot of wine, um, probably the go-to beverage. Uh, my girlfriend likes Pinots, and so that's what we end up drinking the most because I'm not not a bad person, or I try not to be a bad person. Um, my favorite wines are um, European wines. I like the the earthier, less fruity, less bold. Like the the California cabs, they they are just like too much for me most days. Um, it's just like two in your face. Um, so, uh, I know like I've been listening a, a lot of Bordeaux talk that's like right up my alley. Um, I, my like go-to fancy wine is to go find Chateauneuf de Pop, uh, which I always just find to be really good. And, and some years tends to be like special good, I think. Um, I also, uh, I really like Sancerre's from France. This is a Sauvignon Blanc grape. Um, and then when I'm, when I'm back up in upstate New York, I try to get some Cap Francs, which that grape tends to grow really well up there for whatever reason, but there's no grape that I won't drink. Um, those are just the ones that I gravitate to the most. Nice. Yeah. Well, next time, since you are a recurring guest, we'll let you uh, pick the wine and leave the tasting and the smelling because have a little bit more experience, but I'm glad we picked a wine that you like that you typically drink. This is actually our first Pinot Noir on the podcast. Wow, there you go. Yeah. So give it a taste, give it a smell again, and then we're going to do a rating from on the 20 to 80 scale, and because Kinza deemed it necessary, no half grades. See, okay, I, I'm going to put my foot down. Now, I've been to a scouting development program with Kinza, Okay. And um, 
I have tried to put half grades down and been proven how stupid that is. If you're talking about a 65 or a 75, like uh, Stevie Williams once told me that he knew a scout to put a 75 on Mike Trout just because he won't go to 80. Okay, that's ridiculous. Yeah. That's ridiculous. <laughs> 45 and 55 are vital tools in the scouting toolbox, and I will not discard them just because Kinza said I can't go <laughs> half grades. Okay, that's fair. So we'll give out of, so 20, so you go 20, 30, 40, 45, 50, 55, 60, 70, 80? Yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. Yeah, I'll if you that. put a 65, like, you should just think a little harder about what you're doing. Okay. But 55, <laughs> 45, those are, those are pretty important. All right, well, where do you got La Crema Monterey? Oh, before you give us the rating, I just want to say I picked this wine because it's from Monterey and you're working for the A's now. So yeah. I wanted to represent NorCal for you. Cheers. So this is this is good. Um, it's it's super drinkable, super smooth. Um, I'm gonna go 55. I'm really glad that I said all that stuff about 55s um <laughs> you can definitely reach for this every day and have like a really good meal with it um it'd go well with both like red meats and fish if you wanted to um so it, it feels versatile you could also just like sit on your porch and drink it it's nice um for for me again like i just I like the earthier stuff. This is a little bit too fruity to go heavier than a 55, but it is very nice, super drinkable. Yeah, I'm going to go 60. Um, I feel the exact same. I do like my wine just a tad fruitier, so it makes sense that I do have it a half grade higher than you. But I really like it. I think this is a wine that I would pick any day of the week, like not sure what to get. This is a great wine out there. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm balling on a budget. So this is a budget friendly wine as well for those listeners out there also balling on a budget. I'm going to go. Yeah. With a 60. I'm, I'm digging it. Yeah. I'm going to go 50. Um, like you, Andrew, I like a more earthier wine. Um, this is it's fruitier and, and I think you, I, you could have it in any, any sitting. Um, and it's something that, um, you can have multiple glasses of, um, but um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd say 50. It's, it's a reliable, it's um, versatile wine. So who do you comp it to? Mm. That's the real question. For me, I had some notes written down. Not good enough to be a Matt Chapman, but maybe like a Sean Manai. I was trying to think of Oakland A's players, right? As a, It's a Monterey wine. Okay. Yeah, I, well... So I was actually going to jump right to the Pirates and I was going to say Brian Reynolds, who, okay. you know, versatile. He could, he could be maybe a number two hitter, maybe a number five hitter, um, can play center field or the corners, um, can do a lot of things on, on the field. But, um, you know, probably not, no, no shade, but probably on a championship team, he's not your best player. Right, I'm gonna go Yankees here. Um, he struggled a little bit with the bat at the end of the year. Rookie Oswaldo Cabrera. You can he's versatile. You can he came in and you can put him in left and right field, and he'll play a very good left and corner outfield. Um, he could also fill in in the middle infield. Um, 
probably not someone that you're going to want to be an everyday player on your championship team. But um, first of all, utility guy. All right. I'm going to go with Sean Manaya. I don't know. He, I know he's a free agent this year, but um, I'm just going to picture him clad in green and yellow and say this wine is good on every table and Sean Manaya is good with both arms. It's a versatile for going with that adjective. I'm going to go with that. It looks good on every table and Sean Manaya looks good on every team. There you go. There you go. There you have it, folks. Heard it here first. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Andrew. I'm trying not to call you Gibby, but it's just a natural baseball thing to shorten people's last names to a nickname. You know, it's funny. I have never once asked to be called Gibby. I, I prefer Andrew. Um, and I know you know that, and I, I appreciate it. But even like my first phone calls with various people with A's immediately, hey, Gibby, what's up? And it's totally fine. I don't, I don't super care. Uh, but it is funny how people just jump right to that. Yeah, it's just a natural thing. Like Scott, Scotty is Scotty Mo. Like that is you. That is your nickname. You can't really shorten. You you, didn't, you wouldn't think you could shorten more, but you can. It's Mo. So. Yeah. Well, yes. Anyways, thanks, Andrew, so much for joining us. This was absolutely the best. Super glad that you could come on. And please, please come on again. We'd love if you would be here. Anytime, anytime. Thanks for doing this. I I love this podcast. I've I've uh, told you this offline. Like. It's so cool. I'm just glad I could be a small part of this. Well, so cheers. can't wait to come back. Cheers. Thanks so much. Cheers. Yeah. And go A's. <laughs> yes. Well, that was awesome. Yeah. That was so, so much fun. fun. Um, I feel like Gibby's going to be, I just said Gibby for the first time. He was on this podcast. We didn't call him Gibby once. <laughs> but um, Andrew, yeah. I do have a lot more questions for him, so I'm looking forward to having him on again. Yeah, me too. And then I, he will definitely be a recurring guest for sure. I love that he brought up Messina right away, and I was like, oh. I was like, please, please <laughs> say something about the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Um, yeah, I'm sticking with my Sean Manea for this one. I know you typically do that at the end of the podcast, but I like doing it with the guests. So I'm gonna yeah, absolutely. I like that. It was fun. I like the comps. Like That's a fun, um, I don't know brainstorming sessions so. for sure go in a wine store and look at all of them and instead of seeing bottles you see baseball players <laughs> yeah exactly oh that's sean Manaya. yeah exactly <laughs> and that maybe sean Manaya, he was on the cape league so i probably have a little bit of a bias against him that's right yeah cape league bias thing forgot he was a college guy mm -hmm. all right well shout out again andrew thanks for coming on um we're now going to get into the vibes around the vineyard because that's what we do here are yins ready to vibe i think yins are ready to vibe around the vineyard the vineyard vibes here we go all righty starting off with some league news rangers hired dayton moore as senior advisor to baseball operations and mike maddox as the pitching coach um this Dayton Moore was just recently the GM of the Royals. Um, and I believe Mike Maddox was pitching coach for the Rangers prior when Ron Washington was manager. So um, some new hires. And then also today, Miguel Cabrera announced that 2023 will be his final season. Wow. Yeah, I'm... Uh, I'm a little upset about that. 
love watching Nagy play. Yeah, uh, I mean, I kind of saw it coming. I- yeah, no, we all saw it coming, I think. But um, it's still, you know, one more, one last ride with Miggy. Um, he's one of the best offensive players ever to play this game, and, and it's not an exaggeration. Um, and you know, I I hope he has a, you know, a breakout. Not even, not even a breakout, but like a a really good final season with Detroit. I hope Detroit like comes back and starts competing again um and yeah i'll just you know i'll miss watching his antics on the field he's he's a fun watch he definitely is he's always messing with people um it's just he, yeah great guy excited to watch him one last time it's kind of cool when players announce it before the season and it's a farewell tour for them so always interesting to see what teams get yeah. the certain player that's retiring and um it's really good nice for the fans so everyone go purchase your tigers tickets so for trades there's been one trade in the past week and it's actually kind of a big one yeah it is for sure milwaukee traded hunter renfro to the angels for three pitchers uh jansen junk who i believe was um a former yankee uh right-handed pitcher elvis peguero and left-handed pitcher adam seminara so looks like the angels are really retooling their pitching uh, we saw it in the short draft a few years ago they literally drafted all pitchers which i've never seen before um so there's obviously a a need in the organization as a whole to you know add to their pitching depth hunter renfro is a great ad like he's been on five teams in the last five years i think and he's been very consistent he's been a good bad he crushes lefties um and i think he'll he'll be an interesting piece in that lineup with shohei and mike trout can the angels please be good yeah speaking of shohei i got a notification today that he won out um outstanding deep year the Edgar martinez Oh, oh, cool. Um, so he's basically Babe Ruth reincarnate. Checks out that he won the Sammy DH award because he's also a pitcher. <laughs> it's wild. Nice. That's crazy. Um, no, hopefully the Angels can keep um, building and and win with two of the best players on the planet on their roster. Like it's would be a waste of the roster space, you know, if they didn't start competing. Um, but on to free agents. There's been. Uh, did you say Hunter Renfro for someone, a pitcher named Junk? Jansen Junk. Junk, what a golden name for I a know. pitcher, right? JJ. <laughs> yeah. He better have some junk. True. I, I I don't know what his repertoire includes, but I know he got some major league time this year. I, I remember him coming out of the bullpen for the Angels. So We'll have to okay. do a top 10 draft of baseball uh, names. Absolutely. I'm so down um on to free agents there's actually been some big news today we'll start with the biggest one jose abreu the first player on our top 15 list sarah and i both got it wrong he signed with the houston astros on a three-year deal it looks like it's going to be about 20 a year um that's a amazing fit it's actually gross and it looks like yuli guriel is now going to be a free agent they've voiced interest in bringing him back in like a utility role, but there will be some other teams that will be in on him. May possibly the Red Sox, um, maybe even the Padres. I know the Padres need a first baseman. I was kind of, if Jose didn't go back to the White Sox, I was kind of interested to see him maybe go to San Diego. 
uh, it would be a nice fit for him. But yeah, Houston just got better. Rest in peace to the whole entire American League because it's theirs to lose. Um, and it's just impressive. Yeah, but good luck, Andrew. And good luck, Jerry DePoto. Yeah. Because we, we had hopes for you with the trades you were making, waiver claims. But tough beat the Astros. The Angels, even, you were just saying. Yeah, and the Rangers are really trying to compete. Like, they want to be competing really badly obviously like they just signed Semyon and Seager last year they put a lot of money into both those guys they are going trying to go after like big name pitchers um so AOS might be a gauntlet next year I mean Seattle's gonna be really good really good so yeah the AOS is the new AL East question mark yeah possibly um but that's uh the biggest free agent signing probably so far so we'll have to update our handy little graphic yes we got both got that one wrong which is just a shame where did we have where did um we have prospectively so i had him go back to the white Sox, and you had him going across town to the cubs now something else i i tweeted out earlier this is like a he was a must signing for the white Sox, in my opinion you just got a new manager you're trying to change the culture um and they i think one thing they lack is depth um, they could easily slide Andrew Vaughn into first base, but then they're taken away from their DH corner outfield. He's probably better defensively, defensively at first base. Um, but yeah, I, I think you'd want to... The White Sox were ready to compete two years ago, and I think they wanted to keep that core together. So we'll see what they do. They definitely need to be active, but I definitely a tough blow for them. Um, they were seen as a heavy favorite in AL Central last year. So... Yeah, I wonder if this is a harbinger for what's to come for Judge. We shall see. Yeah. <laughs> so there has been um, some other signings. Let's start with first the Pirates claimed Luan Diaz off of waivers uh, from the Marlins. He w- was a former top 100 prospect for the Twins, then went to the Marlins. Um, someone, someone I was always very interested in. I saw him in rookie ball. He is a very athletic um, plus defender at first base with plus raw power. He just hasn't been able to make consistent contact and um, get to that raw power in games. So he's potentially a you know pro- a project that could end up making his way onto the major league team. Um, but be- to make that move, they had to DFA Hoy Park. And he ended up getting traded to Boston for a left-handed pitcher. Do you remember his name? Lobo? Yeah, in in Mare. In Mare Lobo. Okay. I believe he was an A-ball pitcher. So Hoy Park to Boston to make room. And then also leading into Boston, they signed left-handed pitcher Joely Rodriguez to a one-year deal. They That's one area they've been lacking is pitching. So they had a left-handed arm to the pen. Um, they have a lot of... I feel like they're going to be... We're going to be hearing a lot of news out of Boston in the next couple of weeks. Pirate, back to the Pirates. Big signing for the Pirates. Back to the North Shore, kid. One year, $6.7 million for Carlos Santana. I love this signing. Um, he's a valuable um, on-base uh, platoon first baseman, DH, um, that you know he was traded from Kansas City to Seattle, I believe, mid-year last year, and was a valuable bat for Seattle. And I think he's going to be a good veteran 
presence in the clubhouse and him and G-Man Choi will be the platoon at first base. So haven't seen many over $5 million free agent signings in Pittsburgh, <laughs> uh, but I think Carlos Santana is going to fit in well here. Yeah, I love how you just text me two words, Carlos Santana. <laughs> like, wait, are we talking about the guitarist? Yeah, the actually, guitarist? it's funny. My dad said the same thing. He said, did the, the Pirates sign the guitarist? <laughs> My uh, dad has good taste. Yeah. Um, back to the White Sox. The White Sox signed Mike Clevenger. One year, I believe, $12 million. Um, I think that's actually a sneaky good signing. So good for the White Sox. Um they add to their pitching depth. They have a really good rotation. Dylan Cease and uh, Lucas Giolito. They had Mike Clevenger, who I think his ceiling is a top of the rotation arm. He came back la mid last year from Tommy John with the Padres. And he showed some signs of bringing of his days in Cleveland, but you could tell there's who's shaking the rust off. So good signing for Cleveland. Or, or Chicago, Chicago sorry, yeah. AO Central. Um, that could end up being a multi-year deal after this season. Today, Verlander met with the Dodgers. Who, oh, shit. We've talked about this past couple of podcasts. It seemed like the Astros were inevitable, but now more and more as we, as the days pass, it the Dodgers seem like a favorite. Well, I kind of mentioned L.A. a little bit mm -hmm. in a couple podcasts ago because of his wife, right? She's a, a superstar model or a supermodel, if you will. So I kind of had a feeling they, that he might want to you know, at least venture in towards talks with L.A. I do still think finally he'll end up with Houston, but I'm not at all surprised by his talks with L.A. at all. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think L.A. is going to make some splashy moves and... He could definitely be one of them. So their rotation could be uh, Walker Bueller's out with TJ. But they have Urias who came in third and or um, he came in third in uh Cy Young. Um they have Kershaw back, they have Verlander to order arms, but they also have Dustin May coming. I mean embarrassment of riches. Next we have remember we mentioned Julio Tehran last week. Oh yes, yes I do. He's in Dominican League. Um a uh, Colombian pitcher was play, played for the Braves for a while. He actually just signed a minors deal with the Padres. So good for Tehran. His six starts and 245 ERA in the Dominican him. League in La Liga Dominicana got him a minor league deal. He might try to make a um, you know, return to Major League Baseball. So that would be really cool to see. And lastly, today there is reports around Pittsburgh that they have had mutual interest with Kyle Gibson. They've had video calls with him. Um, could be a veteran arm they add to the rotation. He played for the Twins, was a first-round pick at the University of Missouri, and played with the Rangers, most recently with the Phillies. Uh, he was like the more of the fourth, fifth rotation piece um, for the Phillies. I, if anything, like I think he brings veteran presence like Santana, and he would bring a you know um, experience to the rotation and a inning eating arm he always has been known for eating innings um so on a one-year deal would be nice for the pirates to bring in an arm like that maybe try to look into a reunion with quintana would be nice um but yeah that's 
that's it for the vibes. I think the holiday was a little bit slower. And, you know, I think things are going to really start picking up. There is there is reports that we're going to be seeing like a lot of the top free agents signing by or around the winter meetings, which are next week, I believe. Or Yeah, I mean, they always say that even in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Even in fast, hot, hot, quote unquote, hot, hot markets. Right. Like they say that anyways. But yeah, vibes are kind of. kind of yeah turkey trotting right they're um a little tired from the holidays and vibes are slow but good thing you guys have the valvine to keep you keep you occupied and entertained right (laughs) absolutely you're welcome viners (laughs) you're welcome viners hashtag viners (laughs) um but yeah i um looking forward to seeing i was really excited when i saw the report about well i was excited and not excited about the report about jose brayu uh the astros are continuing to build um but it is nice to see some baseball news and um definitely stay tuned to the uh caribbean winter leagues because there has been a lot of exciting clips going around social media even if you don't have the ability to watch watch it online um there's a lot of content out there for the venezuelan league puerto rican league and the dominican league so I was just gonna say, follow us, check it out. Oh, Scotty has been, yeah, Scotty's been reposting a lot of this content. So if you don't know where to find it, at the Falvine Twitter, Instagram, we also have an email. So email us your wine recommendations or any feedback that you have on the pod. We'd love to hear from you and maybe even feature you on here. Yeah, yeah. any questions too? Like we could do like a little Q and A segment. So um, feel free to send those over to at the at gmail.com or DM us at the on Instagram or Twitter. Awesome. Well, thanks finers for another good episode along the Falvine. Definitely recommend getting the La Crema Monterey Pinot Noir for any occasion. Scotty got it, gave it a 50. Andrew gave it a 55 and I'm giving it a 60. So, you know, it's quality and it looks good on every table. Until next time. Until next time. Cheers. Salud. Salud. Intro music by Jordan Montgomery and Driving Well Black Records. Uh, look, big paper, I increase my wealth. Uh, red wine, that's good for my health. Uh, wrestle with demons, I ain't take no L's. Uh, allow me to introduce myself. I said, big paper, I increase my wealth. Huh, red wine, that's good for my health. Uh, wrestle with demons, I ain't take no L's, huh? Allow me to introduce myself.